I believe very strongly in independent bookstores. I think rich is knowing that your resources are at work in the world, not having them all stacked up in your life someplace. I think when you stop wanting to learn and stop wanting to take risks that are involved in saying, I don't know what I want to know, then you're dead. And I'm not dead yet. Welcome to Words to Mouth, an author interview talk show where readers meet authors beyond the printed page and win free books. I'm your host, Carrie, and I produce this show to introduce you to new and seasoned authors and the books they write. Check out my companion blog website at wordstomouth.com. That's words with an S-T-O, mouth.com. I doubt there's a listener out there who doesn't know uh, my guest today. I can only say in way of introduction that I'm humbled and honored to have with us Mr. Robert Fuldum. He's published eight best-selling books. I won't list them all, but folks would recognize all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. It seems as though I should probably refer to you as Mr. Fulgham, but do you prefer Robert? No, just call me Robert. That's fine. Okay, good. So your newest novel is called Third Wish, and I hesitate again to call it a novel. Um, it's sort of more of an experience. You've put so much in it as far as you know the music scores, the poetry, the artwork. It's really... I don't know how else to say it, but an experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I want to get to Third Wish, but I wanted to start out, if you would, is just talking a little bit about maybe tell us how you got into writing in the first place. I know that's going back a while, but I think some people like to get beyond the book, you know, get to know the author a little bit first before we talk about the actual book. Sure. Well, I've been a writer all my life in the sense that um, I grew up as an only child and when I was quite young, I started writing um, certain sort of things and entertaining myself by creating a, a world. Um, and I can't remember when I didn't tell stories. I, I do recall when I went to school and they had show and tell. And uh, I quickly became the star of show and tell because I had always stories about things that I'd found and done and it seemed like a natural thing to, to tell stories. And then um, all through my growing up and my life and uh, my educational life, I continued to write things with never any thought that I would become a writer as a profession. It was more reflection of the life I lived. And then uh, when I um, finished graduate school, um, I went into the Unitarian ministry in a part-time way. But I wanted, always wanted to do other things, and um, one of the things I did was to write short one-piece things about various activities. Um, I was involved in the civil rights movement in the South and involved in the anti-war movement during the Vietnam era, and so I would write these things and pass them on to uh, members of my congregation, um, and then I, at the same time, was also teaching drawing and painting in um, a private high school and I would write short things to my students and my notion was to get people to look at what was immediately around them and more often than not I would write stories or essays with a kind of an invisible tag that said have you noticed this or do you feel this or whatnot and uh, mm-hmm. over time a lot of the little things that I had written were passed on back in those days when we only used fax machines and people would put them on their office wall or their refrigerator, or you know, it's got the best publishing possible when people do that. And um, I had always wanted to pursue a life in art. I'm a painter, and about the time that I decided I would uh, leave the active parish ministry and stop teaching art because I couldn't do the one of them any better than I was doing, um, and was ready to pursue a, a career in, in art, um, I got a call from a, a literary agent in New York whose child had brought home from kindergarten the piece of the essay, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And she wanted to know if I had any more. And I said, well, I got boxes of this stuff, but I got other things to do. If you want to take a look at them, fine. And in a very short time to compress the story, uh, she had selected the pieces and gotten nine offers from publishers to publish the thing and call me up one day wanting to know if I'd like to have this published, these things published as a book. Wow. And uh, I said, you know, I don't know. I don't think that that's likely, but go ahead. 
So um, the Lord Books and, and Random House published All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, pretty much uh, out of edited rewrites of things I had already written. And a year later, it was at the new, top of the New York Times bestseller list and went on, I think it probably still was the second or third place in the most time spent on the, on the list. And uh, I, I always thought that if uh, my, I could become rich, that would mean being able to pay off my um, Visa card and MasterCard. And uh, she came up with this incredible amount of money, and would I accept that? And I thought, yeah, I probably would. <laughs> and so then it kept, it kept going on and on and on, and so the publisher said, well, now we want another book just like that. And I thought, well, I guess I'm a writer for a while at least, but I thought it would be a one-book deal. So anyhow, the, I published a book called, I uh, wrote a, all the pieces for a book called It Was on Fire When I Lay Down on It, and it went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. So I thought, well, uh, if they're going to give me money for this, I guess I'll stop and spend some time doing it. So, <laughs> the accidental author, right? Yeah, yeah. And when I go to writers' conferences and people say, you know, tell us your story, and I tell them that, everybody just moans right, because right. people who are, you know. The good thing for me was that I was 50 at the time, and I had the life uh, I always wanted. And uh, I had always been one of those kids when you ask somebody, when you ask the kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I had a list as long as your arm. And I thought, well, I guess now I'm going to be a writer for a while. And um, so now there were eight books of um, some essays, some stories. Then there was a book on rituals. There's a book on uh, things that I found meaningful and inspirational in my own life that I've published as um, words I wish I wrote. And the lovely part about that book was that uh, I was at a place where I could give all of the royalties to uh, a cause I believed in, which was Human Rights Watch. And then I did a book, was a hoot, uh, was sitting around in front of taverns and uh, old folk festivals and one thing and another with a sign that said, tell me a great love story and I'll make you famous. And people found out that I was going to get other people's love stories, write them up, make some commentary, and then give all the royalties to uh, Habitat for Humanity. Mm -hmm. People thought, oh, this is cool, I'll be glad. So we got, my God, the love stories I got out of that were unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So I've always been one who felt that, well, if you do this well, then what else have you not done that you might try? And I set myself the task of um, writing a novel that I would want to read. And if there was only one volume of it or one copy of it, and it was mine, then that would be fine. But I wanted to write a, what was really a long, complex story uh, I didn't think so much about a novel, just my book, and uh, that would require me, in order to write it, to have a lot of adventures and go a lot of places and learn a lot of things. And so that took about 15 years, but it, it wasn't something I was thinking of. Now I'm a novelist and I'm going to write novels. It was this: where was this going to go? I don't know. So I came up with this monstrous thing. Um, <laughs> it weighs seven pounds, I think, mm -hmm. and, would not, and who would ever think of publishing it? But um, all of my book, previous books had been published extremely well in the Czech Republic. And I had an editor there who was I just worship. She's the most wonderful woman. And when she heard I was doing this long story, she said, uh, send me what you've got. So I sent her the first two parts. And uh, she said, we'll publish it. And I said, well, you know, it's not finished. She said, that's okay. We'll publish it as it goes. Keep writing. And so I said, well, this is a lovely uh, sidebar to this. Um, I really admire and like the people in the publishing company there. And uh, I said, this is going to be very complicated. It's got music in it. It's got um, illustrations. It's got plays. I mean, I think you're crazy to do this. There isn't anything like it out there. And she said, well, that's our problem. What do you want for it? And I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. And this is the whole contract. Um, publish third wish well, and if it makes money, send me some. And they agreed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dream come true, right? <laughs> and they plunged in, and uh, like a long story short, it sold about 50,000 copies in the Czech Republic. Was, you know, I saw really that. Really amazing. 
so are you saying that you published the first couple parts and put it out there and then kept adding to it over there? Or, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. yeah. When she, when they, when they, we finished the work on the first two parts in one volume, then they published it. And but I said very clear at the time, this is not finished. And so I sent two more parts, which they then published in another volume. And then I sent the last part, um, and they published that. And so in the Czech Republic, there are three three hardback books that make up the whole. And it was published over two, three years. Mm. And then um, the Hungarians and the Slovakians picked it up, and here's this book that is, has this life in translation in Europe, which is really kind of amazing. Yeah. Did you have someone then um, approach you to do it here, or is that something you had to work hard at getting done? No, I submitted this to uh, my other three publishers in the United States, and they all had the same response, which really shocked me, was that it has to be uh, totally revised, it needs to be uh, published in one volume, and what you're asking is way blah, blah. And I said, but the Czechs have already done it. It would be an insult to them. If you'd say, now it has to be completely redone, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And um, they thought it was too big, too long, too ambitious, too costly. I said, but the Czechs did it, and it's got a track record. And nope, they wouldn't do it. So I sat on it for a while thinking, well, maybe it's just that's the life it's going to have. My own uh, longtime American editor just thought it was way too, you know, what she wanted was another, uh, um, um, all I really need to know, I learned. <laughs> Good luck, yeah. And she said, you're not a novelist. I said, but, you know, this is a long story, and it has, it has a track record. And it's this American attitude of blowing off European tastes in literature. They, they do have a bit of a history mm. in literature. It really bothered me. So uh, the serendipitous part of this was that I went to uh, a friend uh, who runs Becker Mayer, which is probably the biggest specialty uh, book publishing uh, place in the United States, a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, uh, Chronicle Books, to ask advice. Uh, what, should, what should I do? I didn't want to self-publish, but I was surely disappointed in what was happening. And my own editor had re- or agent had retired, so I was sort of on my own. And uh, he gave it to, the, to be read by the international vice president of uh, marketing and uh, media so for Amazon, and uh, yeah, this is the guy I played poker with, and uh, he read it and got all excited about Amazon picking it up and um, being the muscle behind making it happen. Mm. So um, I ended up with exactly the book that I wanted in terms of its appearance. Not, uh, Amazon put its muscle behind it. Uh, or, or bought um, with no return the first 15,000 copies of it. And uh, the next thing I know, here it is uh, in print. And um, my, I don't know who to say my editor is. I don't know who to say my publisher is. That's wild. That's wild. But what's important about this story I'm telling you is that it says that we still operate on personal contact and we still operate on people passing on to people and people deciding to do something and I had a wonderful relationship with Amazon on this. And um, they um, said that they would uh, give it their best shot, which they have. And they also liked the novel because they could put it on their Kindle reader. Yeah, I saw that. You know, I'm I'm working on a project with a friend of mine. We call it Hope for Authors, and it's really me just interviewing different people in the industry to try to help struggling authors basically have hope that they will get their book published. And originally when you were talking, I thought, well, he's not a good guy to talk to about this because it came so easy to you. You know, you just kind of <laughs> fell into it. But this is a perfect example of keep persevering. And, and like you say, the contacts that you make are key. So that's really yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, no, I think the personal contact, the world, despite the electronic nature of our daily lives, mm-hmm. the world still operates on personal contact. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you didn't and, uh, give up because it's um, <laughs> it's a lovely package. I mean, it's it's something to me that I think is a wonderful gift, especially. And uh, I mean, of course, I I think you do look at it. And when you first when I first received it, I thought, oh, you know, it's huge. <laughs> um, but then once you start reading it, it's easy and it's compelling. And um, why don't you tell us, kind of give us an overview of the story, you know, and and talk a little bit about how you got the idea of incorporating the music and the art within the book. The novel 
novel, uh, the whole, this book, because it's really more than a novel, um, had some interesting dimensions to it. I got to thinking how much music means to each person and how much we all have in somewhere in the three pounds of raw living meat between our ears, this jukebox of collected songs and pieces of songs. And sometimes we're in control of it because we'll say, remember that song and we can reproduce it. But a lot of time we're walking along in our lives and all of a sudden the jukebox playing music. Sometimes you can't even get it to shut off. You think, I don't want to listen to Mamma Mia anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of who I am, you would know if I were to tell you the music I like. And yet I never, ever see music referred to or impossible in the context of, uh, say, fiction. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat if you could somehow include the major or some aspects of the music in the characters so that the reader would know more about that person and that you would have music? Uh, and then I thought, well, not only will I write the music connected so that you could play it, so you'd actually print it in the novel, but I'll put it on a CD so you could hear what it's really like. Mm -hmm. And then I went really crazy with this idea. I thought, I wonder if I could get scratch and sniff pages put in so that you, know, you could smell something. Because magazines do this all the yeah. time, perfume, you know, scratch and sniff. And uh, then I thought, this is even crazier. I thought, I wonder if I could put a piece in that you could eat uh, so you could get a flavor. You know, uh -huh. Because this is perfectly technically possible. Well, even the checks uh, back off in that one. <laughs> For one thing, it's very expensive. And then they even, we tried to shoot and realized that once you had scratched and sniffed it, then that mix of odors would per permeate oh, the yeah. whole book. Right. So we had to give that one up, but the point I'm making is that we have five senses, and in the printed word, you only get your eyes working or your imagination. But So the music really happened, and um, I do have, if we had done the scratching stuff, I've actually got what I would have used, but we never got that far. Um, the same way with uh, putting in poetry, putting in uh, a script for a small drama, because the way our lives are work, um, they're frequently more like small plays in theater of a given day than it is an actual written, written text. So I wanted to make it as rich as possible. And as a way of also telling you about the characters, if you've got a character who is, in this case, the first poem in the book, um, is uh, a poem that the major character wrote, and the only one he ever wrote, actually, but um, it tells you a lot about him when you read that poem. So I wanted to be able to give the reader information wider, broader, deeper than just the printed page. The same way when you look at the printed page, you'll see that it's been broken up in a lot of different type styles and a lot of different um, oh, paragraph styles because I wanted to deliberately slow the reader down a little bit. It's, I didn't want to say there is a story that has a beginning, middle, and end, and there are many stories in this. And I, I don't mind doing, expecting the reader, and because I respect the reader, to do some work, to do some thinking, to uh, not rush, to uh, reflect a little bit on what's going on. So I, the way, in fact, it's laid out on the page slows the reader down very deliberately so. And that's an it, there's an interesting comment there. I I think of the reader as a collaborator in the work of fiction. That each reader will have their own novel when it's over, which is a way that saying that they bring their experience, they bring their feelings, their memories, their needs to the novel. And it's like seeing a movie with ten people. They'll all give you a, ten, you know, a different response to the movie depending on what they brought to it. So the last section, the last fifth, it really addresses this. A reader becomes a character in the novel, and the author, who is not me, becomes a character. And this whole business of uh, whose novel is this now uh, becomes part of uh, this is kind of post-constructionist literary theory, but uh, becomes now, and what I'm really addressing, whoever's reading it and saying, now this is yours, and I trust this is yours, and um, this is your part in it, uh, in a way. And I don't know yet, because I haven't talked to enough readers all the way through, whether that worked, whether they noticed it, whether they liked that, or they just wanted a slam-dunk ending. 
But the very ending of the long, big story, um, in answer to the question of, well, whatever happened to all those people, the reader who's in the novel says, this is how, this is how my novel ends. And the, the author is listing in some things he accepts, some things he doesn't. It's a very interesting way to bring the thing to kind of a close. And the wonderful part about this to me is that it doesn't, the door isn't closed at the end. There is a door you can go through because the, uh, the author is deciding he's going to hire an actress uh, to do something. And now I'm writing, working on a new novel, uh, sort of much shorter, called uh, If You Love Me Still, Will You Love Me Moving? And it uses a number of the characters that are in the big novel. So it, it's not a sequel, but if you read one, you'll think, oh, I know this person, and it can go on. That's fun. You know, does your website have? Um, is it possible for people to get on there and actually share some of those, some of their feedback? Oh yeah, okay. um, there's a lot of stuff on my own website. There, um, you can click on it about the novel, and it gives you some of the music. It gives you uh, my own thoughts and feelings about the whole thing. And then uh, if you go to the Amazon, their special site, you can listen to all the music. You can sample uh, the, um, the um, illustrations. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, plus, I think they've got up about 30 reviews of the novel now from their Amazon Vine program, I think it's called. But I mean, I mean with your website, when you, you, know, you do involve the, the reader in that last, in that fifth part, where they could actually go on to your website and... Um, give you feedback. Um, I think that would be interesting to have people get on there and sort of blog about. You know, that's really tempting. One of the things I learned the hard way about five years ago, that if people have my website and can write to me, I I was getting a thousand incomings a week and I could not handle it. And so I finally said to people, um, I can either write books or I can write uh, website responses, but uh, you can figure out a way to talk to each other, but I can't, I <laughs> can't just, do both. I have the lifetime to do this. So now I've tried very hard to keep that from happening. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, maybe they could just, maybe there's a forum that they could go and share those, you know, share those experiences and you don't have to. Well, you know, readers do that yeah. and I, I haven't checked, but I wouldn't be surprised that as the novel goes along that there won't be a discussion website. It'll come up, somebody will do mm-hmm. it. And uh, I'll certainly read it, but I, I just can't do both. <laughs> do you have a favorite scene in the book? Well, uh, the theme that underlies everything is uh, the word surprise. And I, when I said I wanted to write a book that I would want to read, I want to be surprised a lot. I want to think, oh, I thought it was going this way, and it went that mm-hmm. way. Or I want to be able to do some things that I had never seen in a novel before. For example, um, I won't give anything away by telling this, but most contemporary novels have some kind of sex scene or love scene, either implied or terribly graphically described. And I wanted to um, be able to have two people in bed with their clothes off and it be about a much larger kind of passion that it wasn't about sex, it was about closeness and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think I pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think it's easy to, to write uh, about love, cause, but I wanted to use that word as sparingly as possible and talk about much richer, deeper connections beyond just that one word. So there are very, very few places in there where love in its richest sense isn't and at the same time where I'm not delivering a lecture about the nature of love. Mm-hmm. So I set some challenges for myself. Um, I was one, I guess the word passion comes out for me. Passion, yeah. Well, I, I say that when I describe a, the whole book, and um, one of the things I wrote in my website was that it's about people who love life and uh, who love uh, life enough to pursue that love intensely with a passion. Mm-hmm. So it's about a much it's a love story, but in a much larger sense about loving life and wanting as much of it as you can have. Would you like to introduce us to any of the characters? Well, there's a major figure named Alexandros uh, Evangelos uh, Zinopoulodakis, which sounds really like a mouthful because he's Greek, but because he lives, lives in Oxford, uh, he calls himself Alex Evans. Mm-hmm. And he's an older man with a very, very rich experience uh, having been in Cretan, 
And uh, there's a younger woman named Alice uh, who has many last names for reasons I won't go into. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a, ends up a very powerful relationship between the two of them. Uh, there is another character who's uh, Max Paul Millay, who is an American doctor who meets these other people because he's on what he thinks of as an affirmative exile. There's a character I love a lot named India What, mm-hmm. um, and it's a character-driven novel. There are lots of very interesting characters whose lives are interwoven. Um, part of it's set in Greece, so you've got Greek characters. Part of it's set in the uh, area of the Oxford Canal in central England on a canal boat. Um, the part of it's set in Japan um, because there's a connection between Alice and Japan. Um, there's uh, It's kind of stories within stories and stories because two of the characters themselves are storytellers and will tell short stories. And um, a lot of people um, find at the very end when there's a character whose name is Alice Alice, uh, who's an actress, comes into being, I identify with her because she is a reader of the novel uh, up to that point. So it's a, none of the characters goes all the way from page one to the end, though at the end of section four, all the major characters are in one place at a table at the Meltimi uh, Cafe in the harbor at Hanya, and that's where a lot of it started out there. It's, it's, um, it's a, I think you, an author ought to fulfill promises. So if you say all these people are going to be there, then you have to get them there. And how they got there is, well, that's the story. <laughs> I was thinking you should have included, like, espresso and sake and, you know, cr- crusty <laughs> bread and, you know, goat's cheese. and. <laughs> with- well, I love eating, and uh, I was determined that if I described a meal anywhere in this thing, I would have been in that place and ate that meal and can tell the reader exactly how it, I didn't imagine mm-hmm. it. I was there and had that food. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a friend right now who's in Barcelona uh, this week going to uh, a cafe to eat the meal that I uh, described Aww. in the novel. So. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> Well, I wanted to mention to listeners that Robert has offered a free copy of Third Wish. Um, so go to wordstomouth.com and leave a comment under this interview post. Or you can call 206-309-7318 and leave a voicemail comment and you'll be entered to win. But just make sure that you're signed up for the e-newsletter because that's how I announce winners. I thought it was that's nice. uh, Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was interesting when I was on your website you have um you have a kind of a photo montage of the book that that you envisioned with all the different components to it. Is that something that will become a collector's piece at some point? Or? Several people have been after me on that one. My, when I, my goal was to have one copy that I wanted and in my way. So the first copy was in a wooden box, uh, beautifully handmade, and then there's a tray in that box that had artifacts from the book, and all the pages were on... Uh, beautiful um, archival paper and loose leaf so you could really turn through it and look through them and there was only one of those ever made. Well, uh, several people have proposed making the whole book in that form and I don't know, maybe someday that's possible but that's uh, that's my book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On top of that, to reproduce the thing, well, my God, I don't know what these things would cost right, but right. we'll see. Yeah. Uh, It'll either be an artifact that'll sit on my desk and I can smile and think to myself, I did that, I really did that. Or, you know, somebody, someday, who knows, long from here now, if this thing becomes well-known or classic or something, some fool will pay a huge amount of money to own that. I don't know. But that's not why I did it. Right. Well, what do you think, what did you learn about yourself while writing the book? Maybe something that you might not have expected. Um... I see myself not as a single person, but as a group. I think of my interior thinking processes as as the committee. And uh, there are all these voices of the different aspects of my personality. And one of the things I learned in writing this is to follow some of those lesser-known voices and personalities to see what they were interested in and they could do. And so I ended up exploring aspects of my own 
being, um, I didn't know I could write songs. I never, and I ended up writing some songs for the book. Um, and I, the collaboration that I had with songwriters, with uh, film producers, with people that I needed to ask questions of. For example, there's an actress in the novel, and I wanted to know everything I could know about the life of an actress. So I interviewed a number of actresses. I went to plays, to rehearsals. Um, I got to explore the world of the theater in a way that I had never thought about before and began to look at the daily events of a life in a theatrical point of view, saying who's that character and who's not like that. So I ended up broadening my own interest. Um, I'd always been interested, for example, in kabuki theater in Japan, but didn't know much about it. So I ended up learning a lot about kabuki, seeing kabuki, talking to kabuki actors. The, the adventure of having to, in order to put what I wanted in a novel, and to explore the lives and of other people and the worlds of other people, that was the richest part of the whole experience. Uh, trying to get that in the novel was um, a bit harder, but what it did to me and then widening my own humanity, um, that was the best part of all. Do you think it could be something that could be seen on the, in the theater or on film? Well, I can't go into the details, but I have an offer now from my Hollywood producer oh, okay. to uh, do something. Now, there's no way that that whole right. thing can be in there. And I know what Hollywood does to things, but my guess is there's a real possibility that in some form this will get on stage or on some form, part of it will become a film. I mean, it's too, it is a richness there that could easily be transferred to film. And so what do you say to people who think or who ask that question about Third Wish being a summary of your life? Well, it's, it's people say, which, there is, are you familiar with this uh, um, thing called Where's Waldo? Yes. It's around for a while. Yes. Well, people, a lot of friends and people who want to know more about me, look at the novel from the Where's, Where's Waldo point of view, Where's Fulgham? And I say, it's all me. That all came out of my head. It was provoked by real people and real things and real history. But I'm all those characters. Uh, I'm Allison. I'm Alexander. And, uh, you know, I mean, those all come out. A writer's always exposing his uh, his own way of thinking. And it's easy to say, well, there's a difference between some of the characters. And I said, yeah, there's contradictions in my own feelings about things and what I like and don't like. And so, but I can still say that if you want to know what Robert Fulgham's inner life is like, an awful lot of that uh, is me. Mm. So... I mean, even just from from talking with you and and looking at your you know your bio, I mean, you've it's definitely a well a life well lived. Um, uh, what's what's next for you and and what it, looking back do you feel most proud about? Well, what's left for me, I, I have something that I call my bucket list that okay. I you know, you know what those are, and my bucket list continues to get longer rather than shorter. <laughs> and one of the things I did a couple of years ago, I've always been a dancer. There's not a lot of dancing in this. Uh, there's one character who is a dancer, but not a lot in this. And I had kind of left that out in a way, and I have never gone to a dance that I couldn't uh, look at and think, okay, I can do that. But I went to uh, tango um, dancing and realized there was no way I could get up and do that. So I got interested and started taking tango lessons, and then I took four months and went to Argentina to just totally immerse myself in the world of tango and music and history and culture and all that. And now I'm, uh, I turn my uh, dining room of my house into a dance floor where I can practice. And I'm, when I'm in Seattle, I'm taking um, tango lessons two or three times a week and going out tango dancing. And then it turned out my tango dancer uh, teacher is also an incredible West Coast swing dancer. So then I thought, you know, I'll look into that. So I'm, a lot of my bucket list for the next foreseeable future is built around dancing. And that's why the new novel that I'm writing is called If You Love Me Still, Will You Love Me Moving, Tales from the Century Ballroom. I love it. That's awesome. It has a lot to do with dancing. I think when you stop wanting to learn and stop wanting to take risks that are involved in saying, I don't know what I want to know, then you're dead. And I'm not dead yet. I still yeah. want to know a lot of things. I love it. So dancing, as I'm talking to you, I'm walking around in my studio in Moab where half of it's been cleared for dancing. And I have a dancing partner coming and we're going to Santa Fe and go tango dancing next That's week. That's wonderful. So are there any regrets 
Oh, that's a whole other novel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, most of the regrets I have are things that I didn't do at the time and then later thought, oh, why did I hold back? I'll give you an example. We had, I'm up in the mountains about 7,000 feet and we had one of those delicious spring snows of about a foot and a half of powder. You can't even make a snowball out of it. And I'm standing looking out my window at this beautiful falling snow and standing in my bathrobe and I just had the urge to run out in the snow. And my and naked and my my committee you know had immediately an emergency session. No, you'll freeze yourself to death. And what if you fall down and all that? And I thought, no, if I stay in here where it's warm, I will never know what it was like to run out there naked in that snow. And sometime from now, I'll think I should have done that. So I just threw open the doors and got my bathrobe and ran out in the snow, and it was wonderful. And I'll never be sorry. That I- <laughs> <laughs> I'll be only would have been sorry if I did. That's great because I. It's funny because I did read that on your blog, and I was going to ask you. So did you do it? So I'm so glad yep. that you did. That's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I did. It. Well, before we go, can you tell me what you're reading right now, or do you have any suggestions? This is really weird. I'm going to tell you something funny. When I, I said that I started this novel 15 years ago because I wanted to write something I wanted to read. And I realized just recently that while I had written a thing, I'd gone through all the galleys, all, I'd never sat down and taken the book out of it and read it as a book. So I've been reading oh, <laughs> my own novel this week and thoroughly enjoying it and coming to those places where I think, did I write that? That's not bad. That's awesome. Um, I'm also reading um, a lot about um, medieval history only because I started thinking of my new novel. I wonder what it would be to write this kind of like Chaucer did, uh, of the, the, like the Canterbury Tales. And so I started reading uh, Chaucer again, and then I thought, I don't know really much about Chaucer's own time, and well, you know, I tend to read like this. So now I've got a book of the history of the middle uh, medieval times and the Black Plague, and um, i got a stack, and, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight books that are all following that string of the life of, of Chaucer. And I had that when I was in school, but I didn't pay any attention. Right, you know? right. We don't do that when we're in school, and then we appreciate it later. Well, that's neat the way that you I – lo- I love the way that you immerse yourself in something and kind of get all – you know, pull all you can yeah. from it. That's really – Books are my passion. I don't watch television because I didn't grow up with it. I don't um, – uh, listen to the radio, and especially when I'm here, I figure the news gets around to you. I don't, uh, I'm not on the internet. So I sort of distance myself a little bit uh, to the incoming. And what I'd rather do than anything else is to sit and read a book. Mm. So that I looked at my income tax last year, I spent nine thousand dollars on books. Did you really? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, the bookstores love. Me. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do with them when you're done? Do you do you sell them well, back I, or do you nope, onto them all? Nope. I think I think books should travel, and so if there's something that I know for sure that I'll read again or maybe a third time going to keep it for a while, but I have a limited bookshelf, and when that gets full, then I start triaging it. But everything I read and think, I won't read that again, uh, so I pass on to friends first to see if they want it, and, and then I give it to the local library. So if you would look at my own personal library, I'm looking at it here in my writing studio. I've got one, two, three, four shelves of books, and most of what I've kept for a long time are books of poetry, a few novels, um, some wisdom literature, but I know things that I know that I'll refer to again, and the rest I pass on. I mean, I think rich is knowing that your resources are at work in the world, not having them all stacked up in your life someplace. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do with books. Is there another any question that I haven't asked you that you wish I would have asked you? Well, you asked me when we started talking if there's anything I could read out of the book, and I I would share something that's kind of an odd thing, but it's addressed to your listeners and to your readers in a way. At the very last of the novel, there's this fifth part where uh, a reader comes to the author fulfilling a dedication he had of, I don't know where you are, please show up, and so she did. And she wants to bring Alice to life as an actress, 
and she wants him to understand why. And she writes down to ask him, would would he be willing to do this? And I think your readers might enjoy this. It's a very short passage, but it's a reader speaking to the author about what she wants to do with his novel. Would you like for me to read I would love it. It's uh, called A Midsummer Manifesto, and um, the author, whose name is Daniels, found a blue balloon floating from a string tied to a rock placed on his porch steps. Under the rock was a blue envelope with a sprig of fresh green mint crushed onto it. He smelled the mint, opened the envelope to find this handwritten note. A Midsummer Manifesto. If we are going to go on with this, then consider why. Each reader is a unique singularity, and I am one. While I have come in response to the dedication of your novel, I have also come as a reader, not as an abstract representative of the reading public or an editor or publisher or critic, a reader, me. Reading is as much a creative art as writing. I expect you agree, but I want to emphasize that I have created my own novel using the information and provocations you provided. Your novel and my novel are not the same novel. I have also created you, the author. An author has no authority over what a reader will make of his writing or will make of him. What I've imagined you to be must stand the test of what you really are. I do not know you. An author and a reader are strangers to one another. You may have imagined a reader, or even many readers, but you have not imagined me as I am, because you do not know me. Perhaps neither of us will become attached to the real other when all is said and done. Both of us may prefer what we imagined to what we find. From the beginning we know this. Reality is more difficult than fantasy. It always involves compromise, concessions, lack of control, and one might love the art without loving the artist. And then she goes on to say, up until now, you have been the creator of our commonality. Your novel is the mutual context, the meeting ground. But your writing is not finished. Even though you think how your novel ends, you have not imagined the ending of mine. Mm-hmm. And then she goes on and makes a proposal of, let me invite you as a piece of theater into uh, my world, and I will become one of your characters, and I will tell you what happened to her. And she does. And uh, I, I have the utmost respect for that singularity of relationship between the imagined author and the imagined reader and what's on the page. And um, what I've written is as much about that as anybody, uh, anything else. And I know, I love that. It's I don't know if most authors do that, have that appreciation for the reader the way that you, you know, the way that you do. It's sort of, I think that it's different. Well, um, as a reader, I often imagine the author. I mean, that's why we go to book signings. We want to see if this dude really looks like what we <laughs> imagine. And, uh, and I sometimes at book signings will stand up and say the, uh, face the readers and say, this is what Fulton looks like this way and then sideways and backways and this is how he sounds and now you at least know that. Um, and at the same time, I, I'm sure you've had the same experience. You read authors that are writing me, 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 me books. This is what I wrote. Mm-hmm. This is what's about me and my thinking, my feeling as though the reader's not important. And I said, well, then why publish the thing? Mm-hmm. Um, think about me sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You started out earlier saying that you were a teacher. And to me, you're just a natural teacher in every, you know, in every sense of the word. Thank you. I, I take that as a very high compliment. There's no more noble profession than being a good teacher. In fact, I carry around in my wallet a list of about 30 questions. I hate small talk, especially the kind you get at cocktail parties or dinners or one thing or another. And when things get dull, I will say to people, um, I w- I'm not good at small talk, but I have some questions you might be interested in, and I either pick one out of the list or I show them my list out of my wallet. And the first question I always ask is, did you ever have a great teacher? And if you did, tell me. And I've never had anybody not have a response to that. And then then I will say to them, why were they a great teacher? And there were, there were always two things. One, I never worked harder in my life, and I never felt more respected as a student by that teacher. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, that, it's just wonderful to hear those conversations. I feel like I could even write a book out of the great teacher descriptions that people give me. And then I will say to people, so since you know what one is like, are you one? Can you be one? What would you like to teach? 
And people, there's always something people would like to teach that they know that they would like to pass on to someone else. So, you know, if you miss that, you miss some good times. <laughs> that's that's neat. My father, um, he's passed away now, but he used to say to me, that was sort of his philosophy. He'd say, if there's something that you want to do in life, and he would put it this way, he'd say, find yourself a daddy and make that person, you know, get all you can from that person, learn everything you can about whatever it is you're seeking to to know. And then once you've done that and you become successful and then go out and be a daddy to somebody else. So, well, let me ask you this. Where did you come up with this list of 30 questions? Did you make them up yourself? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's just things that, that I you're interested know, in. Uh-huh. Uh, that I'm interested in. And uh, in my last book um, of essays, uh, What on Earth Have I Done? Mm -hmm. I uh, published where that list was at the time. Uh, Since then, it's uh, gotten expanded. I keep adding things, but there are things I... Well, this in a novel, there is this game that two of the characters play called Left-Right Surprise. Mm -hmm. And they go for a walk, and several couples within it end up playing it for different reasons. And you start out, the first person says left, and so you walk until you come to an intersection. And then the next person is going to say right. And while you're doing that, you share with the other person something that the other person would never ask you and you would never volunteer because neither one of us think that you would be interested or that that person would know that. And I play this game a lot with people, and I am dumbfounded with the interesting things that people know that they would never volunteer because they weren't sure you're interested, or things that you would like to know, but you didn't know to ask them. Right, (laughs) right. I have a friend who's a, um, I've never talked to a Jungian psychologist or psychiatrist before. I've always admired uh, the, the images of Jung, but I was at a tango dance event and talked to a guy for a while, and then it just suddenly occurred to me to say, well, when you're not tango dancing, well, what do you spend the rest of your life doing? And he was a Jungian an, an analyst, and I said, oh, you're going to be sorry you told me that because I've always wanted to talk to somebody, not as a therapist, but, you know, from that point of view. Uh-huh. If I didn't ask, he would have never volunteered. Right. So I, that's kind of the way I leave my life. I, everybody's got a story. I was walking through the um, Salt Lake Airport uh, not long ago, and there was one of those people movers, those moving sidewalks where you get on, right. and, and it was dead. Uh, and there was a guy down in a hole, and he was fixing the thing. So I stopped, and I thought, if I don't ask him, I will never know how this thing works and what goes wrong with it and what gets caught in it and all that. He was so pleased to tell me all about moving sidewalks. <laughs> I, I hadn't asked. He wouldn't have said, hey, excuse me, but I'd like to tell you about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of what's in the novel is there. It's because I wanted to know and went and found that person, and then they connected me to someone else, and it's free. People are so pleased to be asked. Mm-hmm. I do. That's I, what you do. I often ask authors to tell me something about themselves that might be a surprise. Yeah. And what would your answer be to that? How much time have you got? <laughs> yeah, really. You are such a multi-layered person. <laughs> No, I I have uh, I could give you a lot of answers to that, but part of the answer is what's in the novel. That's yeah. why I say that those are all things I've thought, done, written. Right. I love limericks. I always thought, how on earth can I get limericks into? Well, they're characters who can actually converse with each other with things they find hard to talk about through the game of limericks. So um, that would be something I would tell you. I know a lot more about limericks and nonsense poetry than you ever want to know. <laughs> well, I know I've taken I've taken a lot of your time. I mean, we've almost I think we're we're pushing an hour almost. So I will be respectful of the rest of your day so you can go dance. But I, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we go? Yeah, if anybody picks this thing up and reads it, one of the things I would urge them to do and then request them to do is to be sure and pay attention to the music. Most novels don't come with music in them. Uh, they don't, you know, it's, it's a hassle to get up and put the CD on and listen. But the music really is important to the character, as it is to the readers on life, you know, their music and their life. And um, it's easy to pass that by and say, oh, I'll listen to it later or you know, la, la. But the music's really important. Listen to the music. Yeah, that's a, that's a major point because I think um, you don't get the same experience. And while they're at it, they might imagine in various places, because I've described, if there had been a sheet in there of scratch and sniff, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they would have scratched it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
my publisher said, okay, suppose we do put in something to scratch and sniff or to eat. What would be the strongest thing you could put in? And I said, bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might out-scent everything else in the book. I could think yeah, that would happen. Yes, it would. Okay. Well, the book, again, is Third Wish, and I will go ahead and put links to Robert's website on Words to Mouth, so you can go directly there. There's a lot of great content there on his website. Please feel free to call 206-309-7318 and share your thoughts on the book if you read it or this interview. Um, Don't forget to subscribe to Words to Mouth to get it delivered to your computer for free so you can listen to it whenever and wherever you'd like. And as always, thank you so much to Natalie Brown for her song, You Gotta Believe, from the Podsafe Music Network. Thanks for listening and take good care until next time. Remember, long-term member of the International Tree Climbers Association. <laughs> oh, okay, another and, and another <laughs> supply. <laughs> which is headquartered in Atlanta and I have climbed trees in your neighborhood. Oh, that's so. wild. <laughs> Look up sometime. You never know when I'll show I up. love it. I love it. Okay. Well, you've done this so well. Thank you for your interest. It was a pleasure. I think if this has any kind of success, and I know this was true in the Czech Republic, that it'll be a word-of-mouth book. People will give it as a gift, or people will just say, here, don't argue with me, read this. Right. And um, that's the best kind of life a book can have. So I've spent too much time on the road as it is. Yeah. I'd rather be dancing. I love it. I love it. Well, enjoy, and thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Bye. Bye.